following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 1. It's found on page 566 in the chairs in front of you. I consider it a, a weighty thing to be up here. I know that you all take the Bible seriously, and it's my hope that as the word of God goes out this morning, that he would use it to convict our hearts, edify us, and strengthen us to live for him and his renown in the coming week and beyond. So please follow along with me as I read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left, like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of goats, uh, in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. 
Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, and they run after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Let's pray. Father, it is indeed a humbling thing to open up your word corporately, to meditate on it as a congregation, and to see your glory in the truths that it communicates. In this passage are severe warnings and bright hope. May you use this passage to sharpen our diligence in our fight against sin and to enrich our love for you and our amazement at the message and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a, pr- a phrase that is sometimes used to describe the mission and purpose of preaching or evangelism. The phrase is this, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Inter- interestingly, that phrase did not originate in a Christian setting. The man who coined it, he was trying to describe the mission of newspapers. Uh, so, newspapers or Christian media, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. I think we all recognize that it's part of the human experience to understand that afflicted people need comforting and that comfortable people sometimes need to be shaken from their comforts to see things they wouldn't otherwise see. And that includes ourselves. We all face affliction and we've all at times been too comfortable with things that we need to change about our lives. Consider the afflictions that each of us face, whether in big ways or small ways, We have been sinned against. We have been wronged. We also experience the bad fruit of our fallen world. That includes death, pain, and sickness. And the Christian, for the Christian, we are afflicted still in another way. Our consciences are afflicted by the awareness of our own sin. Crushed by the weight of our guilt before God, our afflicted consciences understand that we cannot save ourselves and that we can never do enough good works to earn our own righteousness. We recognize that we need a savior. Consider our comforts. As we selfishly look out for our own interests above the interests of others, we wrong others and we sin against God. We do this sometimes so subtly that we don't even give any thought to it. I know that for me, I often lay my head on the pillow at night, realizing after a full day that I've not spent much of a thought about God how to live in light of his truth, or how to exalt Jesus Christ. Perhaps there are some of you in this morning that are so comfortable with your current way of living that my mention a moment ago of the Christian's afflicted conscience 
being aware of our need for a savior is not something that resonates with you. And that's probably because God and sin aren't things you really think much about. If that is you, I pray that God will use his word in Isaiah chapter one this morning to open your heart to the truth. Isaiah chapter one and really all of his book, he seeks to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Many of the themes in chapter one show themselves again and again throughout the rest of the 66 chapters of his book. Isaiah aims to convict the proud, the apathetic, and the comfortable, which is all of mankind, of their sin before God, and he warns of God's judgment, but he also proclaims a certain hope of redemption. Isaiah begins his book with warning and wonder, judgment and hope. His warnings shake us out of our turning away from God to bring us to the righteousness and power of God. And once having seen these truths, our hearts will need comforting. They will need hope. And Isaiah, as the mouthpiece of our just and merciful God, proclaims promises of that hope. And as a spoiler alert, the fulfillment of those promises is Jesus Christ. Isaiah points his hearers to the coming of a Savior. After all, his name Isaiah, it even means, the Lord is salvation. Before I jump into the text, I want to give Uh, an overview of chapter one so you know where we're going. In verse one, this is the heading, Isaiah's introduction. Then in verse two through four, he lays out the basic charge against Israel. And then for the remaining uh, verses of the chapter, he swings back and forth, he alternates between two ideas. The one idea is the bad fruit of Israel's sin. And then the second idea is the coming wrath and mercy of God. The first section containing those two ideas is verse 5 through 9. In verse 5 through 8, he discusses the bad fruit of Israel's sin. And then in verse 9, he, he demonstrates that God is judging his people, and yet he's also preserving a people for himself. The second section, verses 10 through 20, it hi, verse, zooming in, 10 through 17, highlights again the bad fruit of Israel's sin, in this case, the, specifically, Israel's meaningless religious practice. And then in verse 18 through 20, God again, we see he's judging the people for their unrighteousness, yet he also is providing a way for them to be made new and pure. The third and final section of the, of the chapter is 21 through 31. With 21 through 26, this is a poem further discussing the bad fruit of Israel's sin. And then verses 27 through 31, we see that God is both judging unrighteousness, and yet he's also saving a people for himself through righteousness. Verse 1, it starts out, the text says, the vision of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is, is a collection of his writings. It's, it's an anthology that spans the decades of his ministry. And unlike the historical books of the Old Testament or the four Gospels or many of Paul's epistles, there isn't a unifying thread of narrative or argument that flows throughout the book, and yet there are repeating themes throughout the book. Isaiah, as a result of it being a collection, uh, reads a lot choppier than other genres of biblical literature, and it takes a focused reading to identify the clues in the text to see where, where, um, where those writings end and begin. And they're not always at the chapter breaks either. So for example, if you look at 
chapter 2, verse 1, or chapter 6, verse 1, you'll see that these are verses that are similar to verse one to, to chapter 1, verse 1, in that they're all kind of head, headings indicating that we're moving into a different writing of Isaiah. And while there's not a consistent genre across the whole book, Isaiah does use, and he even combines common types of biblical literature, such as narrative, argument, poetry, or prophecy, or visions. And this morning's text is classified by Isaiah himself as a vision. So what does that mean? Isaiah is communicating truth that he's received directly from God, and now he's proclaiming it to the people. Often I think when we think about vision, I know I'm tempted to think, oh, that, that is a, just a description of maybe images and events that God has revealed, just like John describes in Revelation. Well, that's not always the case for what a vision is in, in the Bible. Sometimes it's just the prophet is recording what God has revealed to him. This is the essence of what a prophet is, according to Scripture. Someone who delivers to the people of God a message revealed by God. And this is what Isaiah is doing here. Continuing in verse 1, after he states that he's recording a vision from God, he then records some historical context. He mentions two places, Judah and Jerusalem, and four kings of Judah, Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. I'm going to breeze through and gloss over many events uh, in the history of, of Israel to just explain some of the historical context here. After the exodus in Egypt, Israel settles into the, the promised land. God gives the people a king. During the reign of King David, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God mercifully covenants with David. In, verse, in chapter 7, verse 16 of 2 Samuel, God says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is called the Davidic covenant. God covenants with David that he will establish his throne forever and that God will dwell forever with his people. Hold on to this idea of the Davidic covenant because we're going to come back to it several times. Okay, so David dies. His son Solomon takes the throne. Solomon's reign ends in tragedy. He goes after other gods. He dies. His son Rehoboam takes the throne. Because of Solomon's idol worship, God splits the kingdom of Israel during the rebellion led by Jeroboam. There is now two kingdoms that used to be making up one Israel. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom maintains the name Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Its capital is Jerusalem. Over the next several hundred years, the kings of these two split nations generally continue in their sin, just like Solomon. Eventually, Assyria destroys the northern kingdom, but Judah remains. And this is the world in which God placed Isaiah. He's a prophet in the midst of the wayward kingdom of Judah, and he serves during the reigns of the kings that he mentions for several decades until he's martyred, as best we can tell from history, by King Manasseh, who is King Hezekiah's son. Though Israel has abandoned God's commands, forgotten God's covenant with David, and moved on to, other, to worshiping other gods instead of the one true God, Isaiah calls the people to see their sin to repent and turn back to God. And lest we think that this is just about Israel and not about us, as we pro- progress through Isaiah's introductory chapter, remember two things. One is that the sinful state of Israel that Isaiah calls out is the position of all mankind. In our state, we are all deserving of the Lord's wrath for our sin. 
And secondly, for us Christians, though we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, we are still prone to indulge our worldly natures and give in to sin. So the sins Isaiah warns against should be taken by us as exhortations to run from those sins and instead live for God. So in light of Israel's widespread rebellion against sin, Isaiah opens his book starting in verse, three, verse 2 by building a case for the people of Israel to understand the extent of their dire situation. They are facing the seemingly inevitable coming of God's wrath for their sin because they do not obey him or love him. And I'm using the phrase here that Isaiah is building his case intentionally because this is, this, these verses here are courtroom language. He is laying out the charges against Israel. Isaiah calls the witnesses, heaven and earth, to hear God's charges against his people. This scene is a cosmic courtroom, pointing us to the significance of the situation at hand and to the clout of the one leveling the charges. It is God himself, the one who created and commands heaven and earth. The bottom line here is this. When the Lord speaks, the heavens and the earth listen, and you and I better listen too. Verse 2 through 4 goes on to concisely identify Israel's problem. The Lord references how his people have abandoned him even though he raised them and cared for them. I'm guessing that God has in mind the things like his, his redemption of them from slavery in Egypt, his provision of food for them in the wilderness, his giving of the law to them, his covenant with David, so many things God has done for Israel that demonstrates his goodness. And yet, despite all this, they've rebelled and they've quit their trust in God. Verse 4 begins with awe. And this might be because of successful marketing, but when I think of awe, I think of that's your reaction after taking a sip of a Coke. But this is not here because Isaiah took a sip of whatever is the Hebrew equivalent of a Coke. No, he is, this, the word that's translated as ah here has the ideas of pronouncing woe and condemnation and judgment. And the accusations that follow are serious. The people of Israel, we see they're described as sinful, iniquitous, evil, and corrupt. And the implication here is that they're inclined to all kinds of thoughts and actions that are opposed to God. The end of verse 4 is really the root issue that this whole passage is centering on. All other sin in this passage stems from this basic charge. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. All sin, no matter how seemingly major or minor, has as its foundation the despising of God and his ways. What is the consequence for this despising? They are estranged, separated from God. They are his enemies, and this extends to us. We left in our sin too. We are enemies with God. So where, ma- where sin manifests itself in our lives at root is coming from our lack of valuing, treasuring, and prizing the things of God over against our own selves and the things of this world. We Christians regularly face temptations to subtly or not so subtly despise God, his authority, and his teaching. How do we despise God? Well, Here's just a couple thoughts. We despise God when we think of prayer as a waste of time. We despise God when we try to soften the parts of his word that we find hard or uncomfortable. We despise God when in a trial we are more inclined to seek worldly wisdom than going to his word for wisdom. We despise God when we, lo- when we don't love other Christians in our local church. In whatever ways we despise God, we need to repent of these attitudes, help each other fight them, 
fight these attitudes and, and pray that God would enlighten our hearts to afresh with love for him. And here's another thought about verse four. I wonder if Isaiah ever heard this objection that is commonly stated today. You know, I don't really despise God. I just don't acknowledge him. He's fine for some people to believe in, but that's not me. To this, we need to say that not acknowledging God is a form of despising. Because of God's incredible nature, because of his attributes, he alone is worthy of our worship. So a life lived ignoring God and spent pursuing other things and thus not pursuing him is an affront to God because he's not in the rightful place in our lives. To not give God the honor he alone is due by instead filling our hearts with other things is part of what it means to despise him. It is idolatry. And God hates idolatry. What kind of God would he be if he was unaffected by idolatry? In his very nature, it is, it is in his very nature to promote what is good and hate what is evil. So, since he is the standard and essence of goodness, to despise him and not honor him, no matter how subtly, is rightly seen by God as an offense against him and one deserving of his wrath. Now, as I mentioned before in my outline of this passage from here on out, Isaiah is going to swing three times between two alternating themes. And the first theme being the bad fruit of Israel's sin, and the second theme being the coming wrath and mercy of God. So we are now at the first section. In verse 5 through 8, Isaiah discusses the bad fruit of Israel's despising of God. Verse 5 through 6, we see a description that is showing that sin is affecting them in totality. We see the head, the heart, the sole of the foot, and back to the head. So we see this total effect on thoughts, actions, intentions, desires. They're all affected by sin. There's nothing that any of us can do that is not stained by sin. And then 7 and 8 shows the corporate and national effects of sin in Israel. God has allowed foreign invasion to damage their land as part of his judgment. And these foreign attacks are demonstrative of how God can choose to use to judge sin within history, but they're also foreshadowing the severity of how God will in his justice ultimately deal with sin and unrighteousness. Now Isaiah moves from the discussion of the bad fruit of Israel's sin in his in this first section, to the discussion, to a discussion of God's coming wrath and mercy. We see here in verse 9 that God is preserving a people for himself. In verse 9, he states that God has left a few survivors in Israel. Well, who are these survivors? These are the people of the nation of Israel who are actually believing and trusting in God, looking forward to the day he will fulfill his covenant with David. They're not pursuing habitual sin like so many of their fellow Israelites. And interestingly, Isaiah states that it is the Lord who is the one leaving a few survivors. The survivor's trust in the Lord is a direct result of God's merciful intervention in the nation to produce in some of the people a love for God and a hatred for sin. Isaiah is pointing us here to a theme that shows out a lot through scripture, one that, one that is God is intervening in the hearts of men and women to keep a people for himself, a people who love and trust him. This idea of God's mercy being shown through providing survivors in Israel is further clarified with the mention of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a reference that would have been probably very familiar to Isaiah's hearers. Genesis 18 and 19 records the account of God's judgment on these cities. 
We don't have an exhaustive list of what these very grave sins were, but we do have an idea of the types of sins that the people were engaged in. In the account, we see sexual aggression, inhospitality toward outsiders, and homosexual acts. Though Abraham pleads with God to consider sparing his judgment, God does not, and he destroys the cities. The people of Israel, they may thought of themselves as better than, than, than the city, but Isaiah is explaining that they're not. Their sins are reflecting the same extent of God's wickedness and God-hating. Um, excuse me. They are, their sins are, are reflecting the same extent of wickedness and God-hating on display in Sodom and Gomorrah. They deserve the same judgment for despising God and his ways as Sodom and Gomorrah received. And in fact, we all receive, we all deserve that judgment for our unrighteousness. This is the condition of all mankind. But unlike Sodom and Gomorrah in Isaiah 1, God has, is choosing to show his mercy by withholding judgment and producing in some of the people a desire to follow him. And in so doing, God is preserving a people within Israel so that one day he will fulfill the Davidic covenant and bring about the everlasting kingdom. After this first section where he shows his where he describes the, the, the judgment of God and yet the mercy of God, we, we go back to another discussion now of the bad fruit of Israel's sin. This time, in verses 10 through 17, Isaiah focuses in on Israel's repetitious religious nonchalance. They do a lot of the external things that God commands, like sacrifices, burnt offerings, incense, prayers, feasts. But they were all just a routine, thoughtless expression of of outward obedience that came from hearts that, that were unmoved by God's faithfulness and unmoved by his character. Their vain attitudes show that they have hearts that are far from God and that they don't love him. They ignore the heart issues that God's law was intended to point them to. And the Israelites had turned God's law into a trite ritual. Isaiah explains that by neglecting the heart issues addressed by the law, they missed the point and had profaned the holiness of God. They don't desire to do good, and they don't even desire to care for the vulnerable of their society, which is something that Isaiah implies that should be of obvious importance. And as part of our continued spiritual growth, we too need to heed these things. We too need to examine our hearts where we are, we are not obeying God, and where we are turning outward expressions of devotion to God into something that is ultimately in our hearts trite and devoid of sincerity or truth. Now, in verse 18 through 20, we move again to another declaration of the judgment and mercy of God. In verse 18, Isaiah says, on behalf of the Lord, let us reason together. This is the Lord exercising his authority as judge. He's in effect telling Israel, and by extension, all mankind to consider their options. Refuse and rebel, or be willing and obedient to follow God and, his, and receive blessing. But the charge has already been clearly laid out that Israel does not desire to love or follow God. They are separated from him. And the implication seems to be that Israel is going to choose the refuse and rebel path. So how can they be made right before God? And how will God fulfill his covenant with David? The Lord suggests something that is intriguing and that's something that would have caused the intent listener to pause and it should cause us to pause too. He implies that our corrupt and wicked natures will not be just wiped clean. They will be made new as if they had never been stained before, like wool, pure wool or pure snow, purely righteous. 
How does God propose to do this? He does not say here, but we will get into that a little bit later. But it is still nonetheless another declaration of hope among these otherwise uh, dark proclamations of God's judgment. We are now in the final section of this introduction to Isaiah's book. Verse 21 through 26 is a poem, restating much of what has been stated already about the bad fruit of Israel's sin. Corruption abounds in the society's leadership and in the general population. This leads Isaiah to write that God's holiness will not be mocked. He will avenge himself. And in the process of judging Israel, he also is going to purify his people, restoring them to righteousness and faithfulness. Thus, in verse 26, 27, Isaiah transitions to the third and final declaration of hope. And this this final mention of hope here is building on the premises of the previous two. First, we saw that God mercifully preserves a people for himself. And then we just saw that God makes his people new, giving them an undefiled, pure nature. And now third, we see that redemption will occur via God's justice and righteousness. Look at verse 27. This is something that had to have caused some confusion in Isaiah's audience. I wonder if they had asked themselves, wait a minute, hasn't Isaiah just explained that God's justice and righteousness demands that he, he pour wrath on his enemies? How are we now supposed to understand that we will be redeemed by the very attributes of God that condemn us in our unfaithfulness to him? If they were asking these questions, they would be on the right track. How will God do this? This is the introductory chapter of Isaiah, but he does shed some more light on this later on. And it's all over the place in his book, but here's just a sampling of three. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Also Isaiah 43.11, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no savior. And then lastly, Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So what is the big idea here? Isaiah is explaining in chapter 1, 26 through 27, that God has plans to restore Israel to righteousness by redeeming them in accordance with his justice and righteousness and marking them with repentance. They may not have had all the details but we now on, that we now have on this side of the cross, but through Isaiah's words, the people could have known that God will keep his covenant with David by becoming himself the Davidic king who will reign forever, dwelling with his people, clothing them in his righteousness. Now to close out the passage, verse 28 through 31 is speaking of judgment for those who reject God and his offer of redemption. God will judge those who pursue their own way. The example that Isaiah uses here is the acts of idolatry committed by those in Israel who had turned to the nature and fertility cults 
of the peoples surrounding Israel's land. These cults, created, er, these cults revered created things like oak trees and gardens. And while oak trees may be mighty and gardens may be beautiful, they are not worthy of worship. And as Isaiah soberly and ironically points out, these idol worshipers will become like what they worship. They will be consumed by the unending, unquenchable wrath of God, just as withered oaks, withered oak trees and withered gardens without water burn easily as well. This is a reminder of the seriousness of worshiping anyone other than God, anything other than God. And it's a reminder of the folly of, of turning to idols. Isaiah charges the people of Israel to turn from their wicked ways and worship the one true self-sufficient God. Let's close with a few thoughts. This is an intense passage pointing us both to the wrath, the, the wrath of God that faces all of mankind in our sin, but also to a future and certain hope. In Christ, this mystery of God's redemption via his righteous and just character has been revealed. And we know that these plans for redemption are for more than just the nation of Israel. God is redeeming a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God-man, we are adopted into the people of God and we submit to the eternal rule of King Jesus. How has God accomplished his redemption through Christ? Christ suffered what we deserve. He took God's wrath for our sin. And God sees the righteousness of Christ on us. In this way, God has made good on the promises of Isaiah 1. God preserves his people, he makes them pure, and he does so through the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He has indeed made a way for us to be redeemed by his righteousness and judgment, and it comes at the cost of God himself, dwelling in human form, taking hell on our behalf. What a sacrifice. What a savior. Christian, though you were filthy and unholy, Jesus has made you clean and clothed you with his righteousness and saved you from his wrath. We ought to marvel at the goodness of God. So the message of Isaiah brings that he brings in his opening chapter is one that contains both warning and wonder. Wonder at the promise of redemption and warning of judgment for all of us who oppose God and follow our own unrighteous ways. Isaiah comforts our convicted hearts with the hope that there is a coming Savior. And he afflicts us in our comfort, apathy, and laziness to remind us of the seriousness of our sin and the holiness of our God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Isaiah writing this so long ago, and yet you have preserved your word for us to read it even now. Thank you for the truth it communicates. Thank you for your grace. God, we see your, the severity of your judgment, but it is in accordance with your, your utter holiness and the fact that you are good and that for us to worship anything other than you is a, is a, is a colossal problem and sin in our hearts. God, you, but you have, you have provided a way and we want to trust you and pray, God, that we would live in consistency with these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.